Would you turn with me, Matthew 22, if you'll locate that in your Bibles, Matthew 22. I really hope you'll follow along in your copy of the Word of God. Uh, as you're turning, let me mention this coming Wednesday night, we will be beginning a new study in the fellowship hall. That's at 6.30. The adults, students will be with Mike over in the other building, and their children will be in this wing here with, with Brandon. That's Wednesday at 6.30. Adults, to your left, come join us at 6.30 in the fellowship hall as we begin a new study. Uh, and to piggyback on what Deanne had mentioned earlier, uh, men, let's do encourage our wives. I'm going to let my wife go to that um, conference, so you should do the same, all right? Um, encourage them to go. Do everything you can to make it possible. Don't just allow it, but push for it, okay? That's you. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, you tell them guys that, Jeff. No, you, all of us. Uh, it, it would be worth it. Matthew 22 in a minute, we're going to look at, I think it's eight verses from verse 15 to 22. I'm going to need to be brief here so everybody catch what I'm about to say. Today's message is not a goosebump style message. I was kind of concerned about that at the start of the week. Like, okay, last week we had several things in there and real challenges that kind of got in our life good. And, and then we finished there with, with verse 14. I'll not revisit that, but that sometimes can really get a hold of our heart. And then this week, uh, we're going to talk about the topic you're getting ready to see. Let me just mention, though it is not a goosebump-style message, this is an important message that is vital to us having a proper worldview. We need to hear this. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, before I finish, some of you sitting here right now may not like some of the things I'm saying. I'm not guaranteeing everything that I will say about the text or the other text is going to be 100%. If not, then you need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit so that he will show if I say something in error. But if all we're doing is properly saying what the Scripture tells us, and you're like, that goes against my pattern, my, my thoughts, my habits, my personal beliefs, well, as we've always said, the Scripture has to win at the end of the day. So my job is to get up and say what the Scripture says, whether we like it or not, right? And so this may not, this surely will not be the most popular message. Uh, it won't be the most unpopular, but it won't be the most popular message I've ever preached here. Nevertheless, this is why we preach expositionally, so we don't get to dodge passages and always just always hit the emotional high and send everybody out with cotton candy every week. This is needed for life. Matthew 22, here's the scene. The Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of Israel have been humiliated, absolutely humiliated. It's not that Jesus was being mean. They dared to come up on the third day of the Passion Week and ask Jesus about his authority. Where do you get off doing what you're doing? Where do you get this authority? They know that they haven't given Jesus the authority, so they challenge him. Jesus then follows that with a rebuttal of their question, and then he gives three very stinging parables that they know he's talking about them. Not on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, look at the end of chapter 21, verse 45, 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Oh, yes, he was a devil. They were the brunt of the truth that he was teaching. They were the bad guys in all of the parables. Every, all the three parables were pointed at them failing and, and disobeying God and dishonoring God and lying to God. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds 
because they, the crowds, held Jesus to be a prophet. And so now Jesus has finished in the early part of chapter 22 his third parable to them, directly speaking to them. You don't see it in Matthew, but they go away. So his enemies go away. I'm assuming he keeps teaching. And then now we hit verse 15. They're putting together a new plan to get rid of Jesus. These are his enemies, verse 15 says. Here we go. Then the Pharisees. So this is going to start a series moving forward of three attacks put upon Jesus in the form of three questions. This week we deal with the first one. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted. So they're brainstorming, they're concocting, they're getting it. Guys, hey, these are brilliant men. They have very high IQs. They're very savvy and shrewd. They're very shrewd. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. We need to entangle him in his words. We've got to trip him up. And so to do that, verse 16, they finally got, anybody want to make a nod? What do you think? Let's do this. Okay, what do you think? What do you think? And finally, at the end of it all, that's the best solution. Let's go with that one, verse 16. And they, the Pharisees, sent their disciples. Notice, it's not them. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. So the Herodians would be these that would favor rule by Herod the Great's family that was appointed by the Romans. So you got the Pharisees coming and you have the Herodians. That's a strange mix of people. And they came to Jesus saying, in the temple on the third day of the Passion Week, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by opinion, appearances. Did you catch that? You're this and you're this and everybody knows you're that. And man, you're not swayed by opinion and people's appearances don't shake you. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, that or not? To pay taxes or not to pay taxes? You always tell the truth. Tell us the answer to this burning question among the Jews. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, knowing exactly their heart, sees right through it, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus, in front of a large crowd, straight up tells these people who have been the brunt of his three parables, he tells these newfangled, younger version of the Pharisees, their disciples, he tells them, you hypocrites, right in front of everybody. He's not afraid. He calls it like it is. He's the most courageous, boldest person who's ever lived. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. So I don't know how far they had to go. I'm presuming for some right there within the crowd, no doubt several. Show me the coin for the tax, and they're pulling out the denarius. And they brought him a denarius. Show me the coin. They get it. He no doubt holds it up, shows each side as he's doing this. Verse 20, Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness? Whose inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Everybody knows the answer to that. That's Caesar's. That's a denarius. Then he said to them, Therefore, whose likeness is this? Whose inscription is this? Caesar's. Therefore, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Do you see what Jesus just did? 
They come up, is it this? Do we pay or do we not pay? And the Lord says, render to Caesar and give to God. He just made two things. He didn't do this or this. He says, do this and do that. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar. This is his coin, right? This guy's picture. This is his inscription, his wording. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. In verse 22, the, the air in their balloon has been burst. When they heard it, they marveled. Well, fooey. That didn't work. <laughs> and they left him and went away. Can I add this word? Defeated. This is their big plan. We got him. He'll never wiggle out of this one. But they marveled at his answer. And the crowd saw the wisdom of the Lord. They think these crowds are going to be witnesses to an indictment against Jesus. And they turn up witnesses to the brilliance and wisdom of Christ. Notice two things this morning out of our text. Number one, the Pharisees question about taxes. We'll not spend that long here, but we do, do need to spend a few moments looking at verses 15 and then 16 and 17. The Pharisees question. Uh, notice it's not like the possessive there. We're saying the Pharisees come and they ask a question about taxes. So again, the Pharisees, as, long with the, as well as the elders and the chief priests, have been totally humiliated by Jesus, and now they have a brainstorming session. We've got to put him in his place. We've got to take him down. And so they begin a series of three questions, as I mentioned before, that are designed to cause Jesus trouble. And in their heart of hearts, as they brainstorm, they've come up with this question about taxes. They believe they have found an absolute win-win situation. They win either way. If he answers one way, they will win. If he answers the other way, they will win. Here's what they're thinking. If Jesus says, pay the tax, are we supposed to pay the tax to Caesar or not? If he says, pay the tax, then off go the Pharisees, and they'll start telling all the Jews around, this man that you follow is in favor of Rome, and he supports Caesar, and he supports Rome. And in their mind, they're thinking, if he answers that, that will surely thin out the ranks of his followers. If his followers diminish, then we're no longer afraid of the crowd. We will do what we need to do. That's plan B, actually. That's plan B, because in their mind, the other win, the more surefire win, is if he comes out and dares to say, no, don't pay the tax, then this other group is there for that purpose. And then, according to Luke chapter 20, verse number 20, Jesus's enemies really are seeking, if you're taking notes, what they're seeking is to turn him into the Roman governor as an insurrectionist, as one who is stirring up rebellion and sedition in hopes that the Roman governor, we know his name is Pontius Pilate, he will arrest Jesus and probably put him to death as an insurrectionist. And if that happens, then all of Jesus' enemies get to play like, hey, man, we didn't know that's what was going to happen. Hey, it happened to him, but he broke the law and he stirred up trouble. So in their mind, guaranteed win-win. We're going to put him to death. Or we're going to thin out the ranks of his followers of the zealous Jews. Now look at verse 16. So that was verse 15. Look at verse 16. They sent their disciples along with the Herodians. Notice, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are enemies. They're rivals. They're on opposite side of the aisle. They're almost always on the opposite side of issues. The Pharisees hate Rome. They despise the tax. They love the nation. Of, they're zealous about the nation of Israel. 
The Herodians are in favor of Roman rule and are always trying to curry favor and keep things nice with Rome. Let's just keep the peace, keep things in good favor with Rome. Yes, we need to pay the tax. Why are they uniting together on this front? Because though enemies, they hate Jesus even more and they're going to work together to get rid of Jesus. In other words, we'll resume our resentment to each other, but first we've got to work together to get rid of this man. And so these two groups are present at the asking of the question because if Jesus says, pay the tax, then the Pharisees will spring into action and diminish the crowds of zealous followers of Jews. If he says, do not pay the tax, the Herodians are going to run down to Pilate and they have many witnesses. No doubt they're going to take down word for word exactly what he says and they're going to note who's there and they're going to pull them in. You tell exactly, did he not say this? And then they will get him arrested and killed. This is the foolproof plan, they think. But again, if you're taking notes, this is a foolish plan. This is absolutely a foolish plan. Why? Because they're dealing with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. My mind, when I read this, went back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with. Wait a minute. You're going to try to entangle the words of the Word of God. The eternal Word of God cannot misspeak. He's the eternal word of God. He's the son of God. He's one with the father, which means Jesus is God in the flesh. And as God, he cannot possibly misspeak. You feel like going back in time and saying, this is your plan. Do you not remember that as an earthly 12-year-old boy, he confounded the best of your teachers in the temple some 20 years earlier? Do you not remember that? Do you think you're really going to twist him? Jesus never misspeaks. Bad plan. Foolish plan. One more thought out of verse 16. They sent their disciples, again, the young guys. They're probably thinking, okay, remember, the senior Pharisees concoct the the question, and they send out the younger Pharisees, in their mind probably thinking, he'll recognize us, and he'll be on to us, so we'll send these younger guys, and he won't recognize them. And they can just act like they're just kind of just nonchalant, you know, in full sincerity, asking this question, burning question among all the Jews. So you can almost picture them. They've got their nice little blazer with, on the patch right here, five cap legalist. You know, here they come right out, fresh out of college. What's our question? Yeah, go ask this question. He'll never recognize us. And they come in as spies trying to chip, trip Jesus up in his words. And their technique is not just the question, but we've got to get him loose. We've got to get Jesus feeling confident. We've got to get his guard down. And so watch verse 16. It's kind of comical. They sent their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, so again, there's a crowd already with Jesus. He's apparently still teaching. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. You see that phrase? Everybody knows you're not swayed by appearances. R.C. Sproul takes that phrase to mean this. He, Jesus, we know that he did not, you do not spin your words according to the reactions of the audience. You don't spin your words. So they're laying on flattery. That's their technique. They're laying on the flattery pretty thick. But in doing so, they're actually telling the truth. Jesus does always tell the truth. Jesus does show us the way of God truthfully. Jesus is not intimidated. He may withhold his words out of wisdom, but he never withholds his words out of fear. So they're right in what they're saying. And yes, 
In my mind, I thought about John chapter 6. Again, Sproul writes that not swayed by appearances, he did not spin his words according to the reaction of his audience. My mind goes John chapter 6. Jesus is preaching this sermon, and man, the crowds get confused. They don't like what he's saying. We don't like that message. They start leaving, and they're just going away in the droves. And you you think, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus needs to change his message. Not at all. He knows he's speaking the truth, even if it's confusing. He turns to his own 12 and says, will you two also leave? Code. They're leaving. The crowd's leaving, Lord. You're losing momentum. You want to join them? The door's right over there. I'm not changing. He does not change his message because of the crowd's reaction. So can I, as I read verse 16, here's kind of how I thought. and Here's how I took it. Here's what they're in essence trying to butter up Jesus so they can get the guard down. Here's what they're saying. You always tell the truth. You tell it like it is. You let it rip when nobody else will. So speak freely. Really, don't hold back. Tell us. I know you've got an opinion about this tax. Unload. Tell us what you think about the Roman tax. Now look at verse 17. Verse number 17. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now it's a little vague here, and in some translations you'll see a very specific translation of this text taking into account the other Gospels. Let me, so let me mention this. I'm laying some groundwork, lots of teaching here at the beginning. This question is not just about taxes to Rome in general because they had several taxes. This is a very specific tax. They're not asking about, is it right for us to pay the ground tax? So apparently I've read that they had to return 10% of whatever they grew out of the ground to the Romans. Apparently, on two things, their olive oil and their wine, they had to pay 20% of that. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about services that are rendered, services that are hired. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about products that they make. What's being talked about is a very specific question. Write this thought down. The specific question they're asking has to do with the poll tax that was levied on each person. Take away the younger people, but once you hit a certain age, and again, once you hit a certain age older, you would fall out of that. But most of the nation, Rome, levied upon them a poll tax. Here's the key. Here's the key on each person. Again, not a tax on your services, not a tax on your income. That's not the question. Not a tax on produce produced out of the ground. Rome thinks we own the ground. This is on them as a person. So I'm going to translate what I believe this passage is saying. In essence, here's their question. So hear it. Should we as the Jews pay the tax to the Romans that they demand as if we belong to Caesar? That's their question. It's a poll tax on them as people. Should we pay the tax as if we belong to Caesar? Or, Jesus, is it God's will that we resist the tax Because Caesar does not own us, we belong to God. So you can see how they frame the question. Should we pay the tax? Caesar thinks he owns your tax. What's this tax? Not on the ground, not on our income, not on what we make. It's on us as a person. You think you own us? Should we pay this tax or not? What is God's will? Again, here's how they're framing it. Yes or no? Is it a yes or is it a no? And just before we hit our second thought this morning, Can I give you, not exact, this is not exact, I'm going to give you a similar style question, a lesser question, frankly, a lesser question than that one that we could relate with that's been asked through the centuries. Here's a version of the 
a similar question. Is it right for Christians, God's people? Their question was, we're God's people. God owns us. He doesn't own us. Do we have to pay this tax? A similar question for us would be this. Is it right for God's people to pay taxes to a government that is ungodly? Is it right to pay taxes? Can I even frame it this way? Is it right for Christians to pay taxes to a government that we know a portion of what we're paying is going to be used to do ungodly, anti-biblical things? If we were to mark our dollar with, with uh, just our initials, which you're not really supposed to do, you're going to put that, and if we could put a tracker on that dollar and find out that my dollar was sent there and there and there and there, and it eventually goes to paying that person to do something awful and wicked, such as abortion. Do, do Christians have the right to say, I'm not paying my taxes on religious grounds because I know you're using part of it for that? Is that legitimate or not? Second thought this morning out of our text is the will of God about taxes. Jesus shares the will of God about taxes in this verse 18 to 22. Verse 18. Let's quickly hit it, and then we'll get down to the main body. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, malice means their desire to bring him harm. He's well aware of that. Said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? So they lay on the flattery, and the Lord recognizes, sees, sees right through that. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrite? He calls him a hypocrite for many reasons. I narrowed it down to two. Had a long list, five or six, seven reasons why they were hypocrites. Let me give you two. Number one, you're hypocrites because you dare to call me teacher and say that I teach the truth and that I show the way of God truthfully. And yet just a few hours ago, your higher-ups weren't here questioning my authority. You're hypocrites. You question my authority, and now you're over here saying how great a teacher and how truthful I am. Secondly, you're hypocrites because you're pretenders. You're acting like you're my big supporters when really you're framing a question to try to bring about my downfall. I really could choose not to answer your question like I did their question back in chapter 21, verse 23. But you know what? This question needs to be answered. I'm going to go ahead and answer your question, but your little plan to trip me up and entangle me in my words will not work. So he sees through the flattery. He sees their heart. Look at verse 19. This is what we notice. Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, they said, Caesar's. So what's taking place? Again, if you're writing, we need this background. In fact, I'm going to assume that that in the corner of your screen right there is a picture of the denarius. Notice the denarius was a small silver coin. On both sides, it actually has the image of Emperor Tiberius. On both sides, one, you have this kind of close-up, and on another side, you have a picture of him on his throne and his, you know, garland around his head. But the key is, it's not just the image of Tiberius Caesar, it's the inscription that is also included, because the inscription says that this is Tiberius, the divine son of Augustus. It also refers to Emperor Tiberius as a high priest of the gods. So notice, the divine, he's put himself, I am a god of Augustus, I am a godson of the god Augustus. And we know that the Roman Empire set up emperor worship. So here's this coin that has these, these two sides pictures of Emperor Tiberius. And then it has this phrase, he's the divine son of 
Augustus, the august one. So how do the Jews take that? The Jews absolutely hate the denarius because in their mind, this image that is made here along with the inscription is a blasphemous, graven image. I've been told that even in modern times, very devout Jews will not let people take their picture because they're afraid of breaking the Ten Commandments of an image, or in this case, especially a graven image. So catch what I'm about to say. The Jews hate this in their mind. It is breaking the Ten Commandments, very obviously. It is a graven image that has blasphemy written all over it. And so they want no part in it, but here's two things, two things. Rome, realizing the sensitivity of the Jews, allows them to mint their own coinage for daily usage, usually copper coin, realizing, man, they're really sensitive about this, so we're going to let them make their own coins, and they only did that with a few people, but that people in that part of the realm over there, they're really serious about this, and so let's just let them do, but here's the other thing. When it comes to paying the poll tax, Rome does not budge. Rome insists that the poll tax must be paid by the denarius. So now look again at verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. I cannot guarantee this, but I want to propose to you, they probably think at this moment they're about to win. Ah, there he goes. Show me the coin. They get the coin. Whose image? They probably think it's going to go down like this. Whose image is this? That's Caesar. Yes. Have you guys read this? What does it say? Divine son of August. This is blasphemy. This is a graven image. This man is an idolatrous, blaspheming, false God, teaching false religion. Don't ever pay this again. Do not pay the tax. Yes, we got him. And off go the Herodians to tell Pontius Pilate. It worked. But Jesus doesn't do that. He asks, whose image is, th- is this? And they say, Caesar's image, Caesar's inscription. Notice, why is Jesus doing this? This isn't a big, big point, but it's a subtle point, and I want you to get it. Jesus forces them, whose image is this? That's Caesar's. Whose inscription? Caesar's. He forces them to admit that they have in their circulation and in their usage a coin that was minted by Rome with Tiberius's image and blasphemous inscription on it. So what is Jesus' purpose? He's showing them, hey, whose image? Caesar's. Your question, should you pay the tax? Here's his answer. Like it or not, and I know you don't like it, but like it or not, you are under Caesar's rule, and when you spend his money, whether it be to pay the tax or to pay day laborers, you are acknowledging you are under Caesar's rule. So this coinage is being circulated all around Jerusalem, and Jesus is forcing them to acknowledge, yes, we use that coin. We don't use it in an idolatrous way like the other Romans do. We're against the coin, but yes, we use the coin. Listen, when you use a country's currency, you are saying that is a legitimate government. And that's what Jesus is forcing the Jews to acknowledge. He is over you, and you are acknowledging that by using the coin. You have it in possession. You, I know, see this as an idolatrous, blasphemous coin, but you have it right here in the temple of God right now. Some of you, you just handed it over. It is among you. You are using this. 
Again, if you're taking notes, write the following. In verse 21, when Jesus says, Then therefore render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus acknowledges that Caesar is the political ruler. He's acknowledging Caesar's place. Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. He's acknowledging his place as the political ruler, but notice what he also does. He puts him in his place by saying that only God is God. Now catch that again. Caesar is the rightful ruler and you owe him the tax. It's his coin. He minted it. And you need to pay that tax. But at the same time, he is not God. Catch. There's Caesar and there's God and only God is God. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's as the ruler, the earthly ruler, and render to God that which is God. Only God is God. He is not God, so you have to give God what is God's. That's what's taking place. Notice that he doesn't say the following. So the answer to your question, whose image? Caesar's? Okay. Is it lawful? Because this is Caesar's image on this, and he is the ruler over you, you're allowed to pay it. He doesn't say you're allowed to pay it. You can pay it if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. He doesn't do that. Jesus says, render to Caesar. Because it's his image, his inscription. This is his. He minted it. They're ruling over you like it or not. You owe this to them. Yes, it is the right thing to pay. But, catch what MacArthur writes. In a moment, you'll have a a quote. And we're going to take a little bit to get there because it's a longer quote. Catch what he says. He writes that Jesus declared that the payment was not only perfectly legal. Did you catch that? Is it lawful? Not only is the payment of this tax perfectly legal, but it is morally obligatory. It's perfectly legal. He doesn't say you can, probably should. No, it is morally obligatory. You are obliged to do this. You must do this. Moving forward in his quote, MacArthur writes the following. Again, moving well forward in the quote. Paying taxes, he writes, paying taxes is a legitimate duty of every person. Every person. We're going to see that again in a moment. Paying taxes is a legitimate duty of every person, but especially binding on believers. Why? Because they, believers, are specially bound to God's word. All people are bound to pay taxes, but believers are especially bound. So, Jeff, you say, hold on. I get you're preaching Matthew, and you're answering a question about the Jews' tax from the Romans. Should they pay it? Are you telling us that we as Christians, in that hypothetical question you made up a while ago, that we are, yes, all people are to pay their taxes, but of all people, Christians are especially bound to pay their taxes because we are especially bound to the Word of God. Now, MacArthur continues, and this is a question that you have on your handout. When it came to paying taxes in verse 21, quote, MacArthur writes the following. This is important. Jesus made no qualifying exemptions or exceptions. Let that sink in. Should we pay the tax? Jesus made no qualifying exemptions, no qualifying exceptions. He doesn't say, yes, you should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's if he does this. 
He doesn't say you should do it if that, but if he does this, then you do not have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus leaves it a blanket statement. Again, no qualifying exceptions, no qualifying exemptions. Now I'm going to complete the rest of his quote. He writes, it's really, I told you a while ago, said, Jeff, this really isn't a goosebump message. This is a worldview. We as Christians need to, not because he, he writes it, but because it is truthful coming from the text, as you're going to see in other parts of the New Testament. His fuller quote continues, right, watch. Jesus made no qualifying exemptions or, or exceptions, even under rulers such as the blasphemous, pagan, idolatrous government that in a few days would nail him to the cross. Within two days, two and a half days, the Roman government physically will be the ones who are going to nail him to the cross Two and a half days before, he is telling his people, pay the tax to Caesar. If ever there was going to be an exemption, an exception given, this would be the time. I want to take just a moment. I want you to think, and I hope you make the connection. The New Testament teaches that God will save anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Anyone. I propose, and there's Bible to back it up, God did something at the beginning of Christianity in the first century, probably in the 30s. God did something in the first century to show that he really means business. I will save anyone. Yeah, but what if someone does this or this? Some really bad, bad sin. Will God forgive? I will save anyone who puts their faith and trust in in my son. What, let your mind go, what exactly did God do to show that he really means business? Acts chapter 9, do you know what he did? Do you remember that? He saved Saul of Tarsus. He said, oh, Jeff, I'm still not getting it. In the first century, Jesus, God says, I'll save anyone, who, anyone, no matter what they've done. And then he goes out and he saves Saul of Tarsus. Why is that important? Because Saul was responsible for people being murdered. But not just people. He's responsible for Christians being murdered. Here's the key. Christians being murdered for being Christians. That's the key thing. So if you ever come across anyone who says, I just don't know that the Lord will forgive me, say, really? I don't know. I've done a lot wrong. How many Christians have you killed? I've actually asked people that. Like, How many, I just don't think he'll forgive me. We're not making light of your sin. I just want you to realize that when God says he'll save anybody who'll put their faith, the key is will you put your faith and trust in him because he's already saved someone who was a murderer of Christians. So he does this to show that I mean anyone. He does it at the beginning. Could it be that when we get this New Testament view of taxes and government, that God is giving us the scriptural New Testament stance at the beginning under circumstances where it is a blasphemous, idolatrous, and corrupt government. Corrupt Judaism, local government over the Jews, and again, idolatrous, blasphemous government by the Romans. God institutes it there so that if ever, no one can say, yeah, but it's really bad here what they're doing in Washington, D.C., you cannot compare that to what was going on here. This is much worse. And the Lord's already made a blanket truth. You pay your taxes. So if you don't get anything else that I've said today, we should walk away saying, well, I guess Christians are... I have heard Christians 
who don't pay their taxes or try to get out of their taxes using Bible reasons. I don't want my money going toward that or that or that. Okay, sounds great. I'm with you. I don't want it either. That is not a scriptural stance. Jesus does not give us exceptions and exemptions. We are to pay our tax. That's just the way it is. So here's this classic statement, right? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar and to God that which is God's. And so this is setting up Jesus doesn't delve all into it and just exhaust it all, but it ends up setting up for more truth that's going to come later in the New Testament. And because we're talking about taxes, I want us to go to one of those that we were there three and a half years ago. Would you go to Romans 13? We couldn't preach on this, really. I don't see how. Maybe we could say we're going to be truly expositional and not leave Matthew 22. I guess we could do that, but I'm more concerned about getting the truth known to us and us having a biblical worldview than by somebody else's rules of expositional preaching. Romans 13. You ready? What does the Bible say? This is what the Bible says. So that, what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and Luke 20 and Mark 12, sets up these other things that are coming. Verse 1. Here's God's Word. Let every person be subject... To the governing authorities. Hey, I know there's a lot going on in our country right now. I'm not, I'm not going to pause and single out. I'm not preaching a sermon about what's going on in America. I'm preaching what's going on for the last 2,000 years. And if the Lord withholds for another 2,000 years, these principles are a lot bigger than what's going on in the United States, but they apply to what's going on in the United States. And you're not going to like it. Go ahead and tell you. Verse 1. Let every person, you know what that means? Not just saved people. He writes this book to save people. Lots to us in the first 11 chapters. He really tells Christians how to live in chapter number 12. Hint, hint, Wednesday coming up. Hint, hint, going to be in Romans 12. Starting Wednesday. Anyway, look at verse 1. Let every person, saved and unsaved, this is the Bible, be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. God has all the authority. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist, the governing authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. Obey the governing authorities. Yeah, but what are all the qualifications and exemptions and exceptions? Where are those? You've got to read. God has instituted authority on earth. Parents have authority over their children. Husbands, fathers have authority in the home. The church has authority over believers. Over believers. We don't go wielding our authority over the whole country. The church has authority over believers. God has authority over it all, and he meets out authority. God has granted to government, he's instituted this to government, his authority over all of its citizens. Now we need to move verse 2. Therefore, here's the fallout from that truth. Therefore, this is the Bible, just let it say, this is not a complicated passage. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who who resist will incur judgment. Again, this is a principle I'm about to read. This is not a 100% all the time, every situation. Jeff, there's some corrupt governments. I understand that. He's taking the whole broad overview. Verse 3 says, your Bible, I'm not making it up, I'm just going to read it. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
Watch verses 4 through 6. You're going to see the same idea come up three times immediately out of the gate in verse 4. Why should we do this? Verse 4. For he, the government official, the governing authorities, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Here it is again. For he is the servant of God, an avenger. The government authorities is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You got your Bible open in my Bible. I looked right across the page. I think it's verse 17. He tells us, God tells Christians, hey, I mean, just look at it. Repay no one evil for evil for evil. For evil. They did evil to me. They committed a crime against me. I'm going to go commit a crime against them. Wrong answer. You let the government do that. You don't do it. Look down at verse number 19. Beloved, I'm in chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't go commit a crime against somebody because they committed a crime against you. God says, I have a plan for that. It's called government. It's their job to avenge you. You turn it in and give the information. They're supposed to avenge. Now back to verse, where are we at? We're still in the middle of verse 4. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, here's another like subpoint because of these truths. Now we have these truths. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath. Hey, you want to stay out of trouble? Be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You want to stay out of trouble? Do right. Obey the laws of the land. You want to be right with God? Obey the laws of the land. Verse 6. Here's to the point of Matthew 22. Here's why I chose this particular passage to look at. For because of this, verses 1 through 5, you also pay taxes. This goes to all. Let every person, but especially us as Christians. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are, here it is third time, they're ministers of God, attending continually to this very thing. Attending to this very thing. Verse 7. What do you mean, to what extent do we pay these taxes? Pay to all what is owed to them. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. There's in that different styles of taxes. Catch the next line. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. They may not be respectful. They may not be honorable, but if they're in a respected and honorable position, then we respect and honor them. That is the Bible stance. Amen, Jeff. Thank you, Brother Archie. That's the Bible stance. So I cannot devour all of this. We preached it a few years ago. If you want to look it up on the website, let me give you four things that are very clear from this classic passage that Jesus' words were a precursor to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Can we have that up there? I think that's the next note. Jesus' classic statement, Matthew 22, is the precursor to passages like Romans 13, 1 through 7. Now let's quickly draw four conclusions. They're real simple. They're super simple. You go read this five times, and you're going to say, that is exactly what the Bible teaches. Number one. Truth number one from Romans 13. Government authority comes from God. Well, who died and appointed you to be the boss? Uh, God. God did. Oh. God put him in charge. That's the governing authorities. 
teachers in the classroom. If your kid misbehaves at school, that didn't work at my house. And I tried that one time. I won't go into it all. I literally remember where my, he was in the bathroom. <laughs> it was early morning, and my dad called and said that my uncle called and said, Jeff, I hear you're trying to take over the school up there. Uh, yeah, I don't want to hear that ever again. Yes, sir. That's it. Who's, who's the authority? That teacher is. Why? Who appointed them authority? They're an extension of the government. Their authority comes from God. God has all authority, and he's meted it out to various people. Government authority comes from God. To track that, this is the only one that will do this with flip over to Daniel chapter number 2. I want you to see something that's pretty important. Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Can't go into it all, but Daniel has received a vision from God of not only the interpretation of the dream, but he has seen the dream. And he's going to reveal that. Not, not here to preach that. Watch what Daniel chapter 2 verse, 11, verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 20 says. Daniel answered and said, because God gave them this revelation and vision. Daniel answered and said, quote, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. So the wisdom belongs to God, all the might belongs to God. Watch verse 21. Daniel's talking about our God. He, God, changes the times and seasons. I don't think he's ta talking only about the fall and winter, and spring, and summer. I think he's talking about times of history on earth, what is happening, and as seasons come and go. Look at verse 21 again. Daniel correctly prophesies, he, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. Somebody's really wise, where'd they get that? God gave it to them. And knowledge to those who have understood. Somebody has a lot of knowledge. How come they have it? God has all knowledge and gave them some knowledge. God has all wisdom, gave them some wisdom. God sets up this king, and God takes that king down. Jeff, what does this mean? Remember Romans 13, point number one, government authority comes from God. Translation, our previous leaders were appointed by God. Our current leaders have been appointed by God. Now we hear that, and some of you are thinking, on both sides, why would God do that? Sometimes it's a blessing, and sometimes it's a judgment. We want a king. No, you don't. Oh, yes, Israel, we, it says we want a king, God. Okay, I'll give you a king. And then they bemoaned their king. And they had some good kings, they had a lot of bad kings. Previous leadership is appointed by God. Present leadership is appointed by God. Future leadership will be appointed by God. That's what the Bible teaches. Back to Romans 13. We've got to hit these quickly. Just, I'm just put it out there. Here's what the Bible teaches. We should live in subjection to government. We should live in subjection to government. Number three. Clear as bell, verses 6 and 7 in Romans 13. Let me get back over there. I'm not going to reread re re it anyway. Verse 6 and 7, we, here's the truth, should pay our taxes. Again, no exemptions or exceptions are mentioned. We should pay our taxes. And then number 4, clearly in verse number 7, render respect to whom respect is due and honor to whom honor is due. He said, Jeff, that's just one verse in the New Testament. Okay, we'll see. Fourth point, 
major point from this text in Romans 13. We should honor governing authorities. Now, why? I probably am going to have to move back over there. I've moved my marker. Romans 13. Why should we do these four things? I just want to have it open in case. You ready? Government is an extension of God's authority. It is God's authority extended to parents over their children, husbands, dads over the family, to the church, over me, and over you. I'm a believer. The church is over me. church is over you. It's an authority on earth. Under God's authority, and the government is the authority over us as citizens. Why? Because government is an extension of God's authority. And let me add this. As such, they will give an account of what they do with that authority to God. You're going to give an account. So that's one of the things we rest upon. So I would say to all of us and anyone who's listening, if you draw a check from the government, you have an extension to you of authority from God. You're going to give an account of what you do with that. People do different things with that authority. Some do a lot. Some do very little. Some do a lot of wrong. Some do a lot of good. You're going to give an account for what you do. Like what kind of government, Jeff? Well, democracy. Democracy is an extension of God's authority. It's what we have here in the United States. Or benevolent monarchies are an extension of God's authority. And selfish monarchies. And Benevolent oligarchies and selfish oligarchies. Benevolent tribal chiefs have been given an authority by God. And selfish, even sometimes cruel tribal chiefs have been given their authority by God. And yes, totalitarian governments have been given their authority by God. Now what I'm about to say is not the ideal. It's not what we're seeking for. But I'm going to have to say it. I remember I took this quote from some notes in Romans 13 previously. This is not excusing bad behavior and ungodly government. It's not excusing that. It's just trying to help us get the picture of the New Testament. One more quote from MacArthur. He writes the following. Get it. Even the most wicked, godless government acts as a deterrent to crime. Even the most wicked, godless governments act as a deterrent. Let me spin that a little plainer way, and you write it in your notes. Even bad government is still better than no government at all. That is absolutely true. Bad government is better than no. And I know some people, bless their hearts up in the Northwest. Oh, bless their hearts. Up in Seattle, wherever it was. Let's just do away with it. Yeah, right. You don't want that. I promise you. Even bad government is better than no government. Guys, just... I don't have time to develop this thought. Just go home and let your mind go. Literally think hour by hour what would happen if we have no laws in America. What if we have no laws? What would happen on the road over here today? What would happen in your neighborhood? What if we have laws but no one to enforce the laws? You don't want to know what would happen. We love good old Anderson, South Carolina. But how long do you think it would take before it would be awful to live in Anderson, South Carolina if we had laws, but no one to enforce the laws. 
It would be a horrible place to exist because mass chaos would break out. The strong would afflict and abuse and persecute the weak. Physical life would constantly be endangered. Private property would always be endangered. Do you realize a hundred good old boys could get together with their rifles and just set up a, a stop point right over here on Pyramidary Road? What's going on? Yeah, a uh, dollar apiece. What? Dollar apiece. Okay. And they just set up. What are you going to do? They can. Well, no, I'll get a bigger group over here. Right. The Wild West has now broke out in good old lovely Anderson because we're such good people. Oh, I'm telling you, if there were no laws and no one to enforce the laws, you don't want to know how wicked Anderson, South Carolina could be. It would be awful to live in. Let's take some thoughts here. New Testament giving. New Testament giving includes us paying our share of taxes. Romans, thir- Romans 13 gives us at least three, three ways. It's going to sound similar, right? It's going to sound the same, but I want to give you three ways of hearing that. Is it right for us to pay taxes? Yes. Number one, because it takes money to operate an effective government. It takes money to protect physical life. It takes money to protect property. It takes money to enforce laws. We can have all the laws we want, but if no one's out enforcing it, then they're no good. It takes money to hire people, police and sheriffs and judges and build prisons and court systems and all of those things, all that goes with it. It takes money to put signs on the road. So number one, it takes money to operate. Number two, this is a key thought that spoke to me over and over three times in verses four, five, and six. Why do we need to pay taxes? Because they are the servants of God who are worthy of their hire. They're worthy of their hire. They attend continually to these things. We owe them that. Sometimes, like, listen, I'm going to make my opinion. We have a lot of government waste in our, in our taxes. A lot of government waste. But you're going to be hard-pressed to go find an individual who's getting paid by the government that's getting overpaid. <laughs> if you think our, pe- our teachers are getting overpaid, go spend a couple of days in, in, in middle school next week. Go. And you see if they're getting overpaid. I've heard people, president makes $400,000. Do you know what CEOs of much smaller corporations make that have so much less pressure on them? Now, I realize some put more into the presidency and others put less. Not going into that. I realize that. And they're going to give an answer to God. You couldn't pay me to have that job. No way would I want the responsibility of this country on me. And mine does it no way. We'll give you 400000 You better get out of here with that. That's not even anywhere near enough. They're not overpaid. They're way underpaid. They're worthy of their hire. But here's another big one. Not on your hand. I just want you to hear it. Why should we pay taxes? Because we all receive benefits from the government. We go turn on the water over here. It's clean water. We pay for it. But it's clean water. My house as well. We have sewage that comes out of this building and your house and mine. We pay for it, but there's a reason. I live in a little neighborhood, about 100 people. I don't have room for a septic tank. I don't have room for drain lines. Somebody has to oversee this. We have energy being given to us. I dare say almost all of us, unless I know somebody may walk across from over there and somebody from right back here, I don't know that any of the rest of us walked here or rode a horse. We drove on these roads. We could never afford these roads. We're benefiting from government, if for nothing else, but they are locally protecting our lives. 
Nationally, they're protecting our lives. If we had no standing military, how long do you think it, ta- it would take for other countries to realize America's there for the taking? How long before they would be dropping their, their people from their airplanes and they would be landing on our beaches? In no time at all, it takes money to do this. We're beneficiaries. So I want to share this. I don't know if I'll get it out correctly, but I just want to. This is an American little snippet, right? This, this is for us. I get it. We're frustrated. Can I propose to you one of the reasons why we're frustrated? Is because it is very different now than it was in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s. We have nonstop visual of what our lawmakers are doing. Nonstop audio of what they are doing. Whole channels set aside to tell us what our lawmakers are doing. And then we have other journalists. Yeah, right. That's a joke. Constantly sharing commentary on what our lawmakers are doing. Hey, they've been making bad decisions a lot longer than the last five years or 10 years or 20 years. They've been doing it a lot longer than that. The thing is, we know about it now. And we're a democracy. And so we get to talk about it and just, nobody's happy. This side is happy and that side's not happy. Why? Because we each know what the other side's doing. And it's constantly being stirred up. Now listen, I'm not excusing bad government. And their exception. This is not a blanket statement. Here's my point. What they're doing, take what I'm saying, what they're doing day to day on the whole does not affect my day to day life. It really doesn't. But if they were to be gone and the government truly shut down and all the soldiers and the police and the sheriffs went home, that would start affecting my life really quick. We're far more blessed than we think we are. We get all worked out. I get that. Boy, they need to, I understand that. We don't realize how blessed. They're not having these discussions in China and North Korea. They're not all bent out of shape. They don't know what their government's doing. They're only told a little. And you better not say anything about it or you go to prison. We're blessed. And we get resentful because of our blessings. Now let's flurry through the home front, down the home stretch. Here we go. Got your Bible? Well, there's that verse or two there in Romans. I'll give you that, Jeff. And okay, Jesus said that in Matthew 22. Okay. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Flip over there. Let's just hit a couple. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's see what the Bible says. Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus with its 300,000 people, and there's a church or churches that are there. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, I'm going to get there as soon as I can. Till I come, I want you to set things in order in the churches. Watch what Paul writes. That's chapter 3. Watch what Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, so here's Timothy, one of the young elder pastors, a close disciple of Paul. What should we do when the church gathers? First of all, meaning of of important rank, first rank. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, like urgent pleading with God, prayers, asking, intercessions, praying for someone else. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Be made for all people, all kinds of people. But notice what he singles out. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Hey, Timothy, when the the Christians gather in Ephesus, what I want you to do, have them pray for the king, the emperor, Caesar. Hey, Paul, isn't this the guy that's going to have you beheaded soon? It is. Pray for him. Pray for them. And those who are in high position of authority. Pray that 
the Christians will live quiet, peaceable lives and that we'll be like leaven affecting quietly in among the people, spreading the gospel, but living peacefully under these. And give thanks for the king. What? Because even bad government is better than no government. Flip over just a few pages. Titus chapter 3. Titus, like Timothy, was left, like Timothy was left in Ephesus. Titus is left on the island of Crete. Paul's telling him how to set the church in order. What, what do you want done in the churches here, Apostle Paul? Titus chapter 3, look at verse number 1. Remind them. I think if Paul were here this morning or could get me on the phone, he'd say, Jeff, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's what the Bible says. This is your Bible. Jeff, I don't like you anymore. I think I'm going to go to another church. Okay, show me where we're damaging the Scripture, twisting it. Remind them, God's people, to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Well, that's Paul. Okay, that's Paul. That's Paul. He's, he's got a, he's real long-suffering, and apparently he's okay with what's going on. I'm not what that, sure what that is. It's not just Paul. One more passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. Flip over 1 Peter chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's finish there this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject. Whether it be to the emperor. These are wicked people. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Why would we do this? Verse 15, for this is the will of God. That by do, I don't like anybody telling me what to do. Verse 15, God's telling you what to do. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's a lot of foolishness going on in the United States. Christians need to be setting the right example. Live as people who are free, free to obey the word of God, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. God knows your real intent. I'm doing this or I'm not doing that because of that. Really? Could it be you're just a rebel? Could it be just you just have a wicked heart? Don't use it as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I don't agree with their life. They're secretly and privately. I know what kind of person they are. That's, that's God's business with them. They're in that position. Obey the laws. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. And so these passages, whether it be Romans, Matthew, 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, these have stirred up a lot of debates. Okay, Jeff, hang on. To what extent do we obey the laws of the government? What are the boundaries? Six times in our country, laws of Conscription, conscription have been employed. Mandatory military drafts. Young men being told you're going to go to war six times in our country. You know what happened? Most people sprang to action and went to war and did what they were told. Obey the government. 
But among them, at those times, those six times, there are others who fall into a category of conscientious objectors. And they've been called names. And each time is different, by the way. But there have been some, and I know this won't be popular, but there have been some who have said, I'm going to disobey what you tell me to do. Why would you do that? Because I don't have a beef with those people over there, and I don't know why you're telling me to get a gun and go kill, kill that guy. That, what that guy's doing is none of my business over here. I'm not going to do it. You're just trying not to get shot. It ain't about me getting shot. I'm not going to go kill anybody. And they were called names and all of that. What is the boundary? Where does the government have a limit of what it can tell us to do? There have been countless, many, many, and there will continue to be many more things that the government will tell us to do that we may not like. Like what? Speed limits. I can go right over here about two miles away, and I can show you. I have no idea. Why is it 35 mile an hour through here? I don't know why. Blackley Road, anyway. Why is that 35? Is this a speed trap? Do we have to? Is this Barney Five, Roscoe P. Coltrane sitting around the corner trying to get everybody? Some of y'all have no idea who Roscoe P. Coltrane is. I grew up in the 70s. Speed limits. I don't agree with that. That's the law. And when we break the law, we break the law. Be ready to pay the price. Seatbelts. I don't know. I think that's stupid. If they make the law, we got to do it. Here's a big one. This has affected my family. Gamelands. Our dogs are running a bear, man. We got it, man. This thing's about to cro- oh, accidentally cross the road. Oh, no, it's over in the sanctuary. Catch the dogs. No, did you see how big that bear Look at that. We got it. Let's go. No, look at those signs. I think that's a stupid law. All the good bear are in there. All the best fish are in that part of the stream up there that's restricted. Isn't that amazing? I think these animals can read signs. Look, it's going there. Apparently, they're not allowed to get us in there. Let's swim up there. But we don't get to pick and choose. So, Jeff, are you saying there's never a time? Is there never an occasion? Take this note. The biblical stance is for God's people to obey the laws of their governments. This is bigger than the United States. The biblical stance is for God's people to obey the laws of their governments unless... Unless, you say, Jeff, are there exemptions? There are no exemptions to paying taxes. But there is this. We are to obey the laws of our our governments unless obeying those laws cause them to break God's higher laws that are clearly stated in his word. When they're clearly stated in his word, then we are to disobey the government. Other than that, we're to obey the government. Jeff, are there any examples of endorsed civil disobedience in the Scripture? Surprisingly, not many. I would challenge you. If it's a Wednesday night, I'd give you a few minutes, and you'd be able to like, what's our examples? Let me give you a few. Down in Egypt, Egypt was the government over Israel, and Egypt told the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew children. And they disobeyed. Why? Because that's murder, and though we're to obey you, we're not going to obey you committing murder. Here's one. Daniel was told to eat meat, the king's meat. But Daniel's been told by God as a young Jewish man, don't eat this certain food. It will defile you as a Jew. 
Daniel disobeyed the government. Daniel was in great favor with the government almost all the time in the book of Daniel, but he disobeys on two occasions. Why? I can't defile myself with the king's meat. So he took a stand. He wouldn't do it. Here's another one. He refused not to pray. They said, don't pray. I can't do that. God tells me to pray. The three Hebrew children are told to bow down in front of an idol. That's idolatry. We can't obey you, government, when you tell us to commit idolatry. Can't do it. And, of course, the classic New Testament is the apostles disobeyed their local Jewish government who says, you shall not go out and teach and preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they straight up tell them, we must obey God more than you. We're going to disobey you. We have to teach and preach the gospel. Outside of that, good luck. Do you see the times where we don't obey the government? I'm not going to commit murder. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop sharing the gospel. And I'm not going to commit idolatry. And I'm not going to defile myself just because you say so. Yeah, well, Jeff, I got some other pretty good ideas. And I think the government's stupid on some of those things too. And like, okay, those are not Bible reasons. So when we disobey the government, can we go and point to a verse and say, here's why I don't do that and here's why I do that? If we can't do that, then we're going against the pattern and the commands of Scripture. And I know we don't like that. We don't like it. So I'm finishing. You won't even have to turn here. Verse 21 of our text back in Matthew 22 says this. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I'm not going to launch into a teaching on the last phrase. The point was about taxes. But along with that is what Sproul writes. Catch it? And to God. Almost done. You ready? Sproul writes, whereas the Pharisees set up an either-or question for Jesus, is it that or that? Do we pay the tax or not? He says, whereas the Pharisees set up an either-or question for Jesus, he gave a both-and answer. They want either-or, yes, no. Jesus says that and that. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and? So then he's God. No, 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 he's not God. You render to God that which is God's. Write this down. In Matthew 22, verse 21, Jesus lays out kind of an outline of proper New Testament giving that we need to check ourselves by this morning. What does it look like? Number one, God's people should pay their taxes. By the way, they usually do that for you before you get your check. Isn't that amazing? Say, Jeff, I'm really good at it. Because <laughs> they make sure that they do it first, Okay. God's people should pay their taxes. Number two, God's people should also give to support God's work in the local faith family and their community. That has a lot under it. And you say, Jeff, I don't know that I see that anywhere in the Bible. If you want to write out to the side, 1 Timothy chapter 5, just go look for it. I don't want to seem self-serving. 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 5. No, it's Galatians 6. Many other passages. What is Christian New Testament giving? Pay your taxes. Give to your local faith family and the needy in your community. Give to the needy. That's all in that second idea. And do you remember the other big thing that we give to? The spread of the gospel worldwide. It takes money to do these things. And this is God's will. Any believer who shirks their responsibility in any of these three areas is forsaking their Christian duty. Any believer... I know I've spent all my time on the first point. Any believer, I've found ways to not have to pay my taxes. Or I pay my taxes, I just don't 
give to local work. I only give to missions and taxes. If you only do one of those or none of those or all three, listen, we should strive. God, would you bless me so that I can do all? I want to partake in the, in the taxes. I ride on these roads and those soldiers protect me and those police officers protect me and this and that and the other and this water and this energy and again, sewage and you, you name it, many, many things. I benefit from that. My kids benefit from that. Lord, bless me so that I can participate in that and that I can participate in your work in the local church and the spread of the gospel around the world. You ought to be praying for that. So here, here it is. Neither our tax money is ours to keep It's not yours. If you keep it, it's stealing. And God's money, if you keep it, you're robbing from God. That's New Testament giving. So normally this is where I do a heads bowed, eyes closed. And we're not going to do that. I'm going to finish here. We're going to stand and pray in just a moment. Not yet. And then we'll be done. Does your life exhibit New Testament giving? Are you a three out of three? Do you live in subjection? To the laws of our government. If you're thinking, I have my areas where I disobey the government, do you have a clear Bible passage as to why you do that? You need much more than your opinion or how you've been taught. Can I make a statement that I should have made a while ago and I forgot, so I'm going to make it right here. Many Christians as I've been watching the last few years, are affected far more by the cultural climate and the bad habits of other people who are Christians than they are by the scriptural passages and truths that we looked at this morning. That group of Christians is doing something, and that group of Christians, and they just start acting like them as citizens. Instead of like, wait a minute, First Timothy, Titus, First Peter, Romans, does not look anything like that. Christians don't know the Bible. And so they're just following what everybody else is doing and following what's being done on Facebook. Do you live in subjection to the laws of our government? And when we don't, then we're, we're accepting the punishment that will come with that. And here's where I really want to finish. I know we're frustrated. I am too. Man, I've got a lot of opinions. Ask me privately and I'll share them with you. We're not going to make this pulpit time for Jeff Bartlett to give his opinion about politics. We ain't got time for that. That'd be a waste of God's people's time. I'd have to give an account for that. I'm not going to get you all rah-rah on my perspective. I have a perspective. We're going to stick to the truth of the Word of God. We're going to stay to the book. That's my job. That's what you should want. Ask me privately and I'll tell you my opinion. That's a separate thing. Guys... I understand. We've got to defend our freedom. But do you realize how good we have it? We get to vote for who our leaders are. We get to petition and lobby and put some pressure, respectful pressure on our leaders. And you're going to think I'm joking here. I'm not joking. That is a blessing. This third one is a blessing. If you don't like it, you get to leave the United States. There are places in the world, their people don't get to leave. You get to leave if you want. You get to vote. You get to be involved. So Jeff, yes, should we just sit by and lose all of our freedoms? Absolutely not. And this, I promise, is where I'm closing. I wrote that, this this morning. In light of our current freedoms, what should we do? And this is a whole sermon by itself. Number one, we should pray for our country. If you just discount, yeah, it's nice. Move on, Jeff. What's the real stuff we should do? Pray for our country. Do not discount prayer. 
Number two, work to affect proper laws. We're allowed to do this respectfully. We have this thing called freedom of speech. Let's protect that. Use the freedom of speech to protect our freedom of speech. Number three, run for office. If God leads you, run for office. But the biggest thing, I would say, yes, those last two, pray for our country. And here's the big ones. With prayer, evangelize people and make disciples. Preach God's truth. Preach against sin. Let's, if the church would get busy winning people to Christ and teaching them the word of God, then we'll start voting better and we'll get better leaders. That's the number one main thing. Get out and get involved in politics if the Lord leads you. But don't do that at the expense of not praying and not evangelizing, not discipling, not teaching and preaching against sin and for God. Would you stand with me this morning? I told you it's going to be a goosebump message. Woo-hoo. I got the heebie-jeebie. No, you're like, oh, I don't like him. Has he been on my Facebook page? No, I promise I haven't. I don't have a face. I don't do Facebook. Let's pray. Father, through Christ, in obedience to your commands, we give thanks. You said, let thanksgivings be given for all people and for kings. Even like the Roman emperor, they were very wicked. And so, Lord, we thank you for our presidents that we've had. Lord, we thank you for our vice presidents and our senators and our House of Representative members and our mayors and our governors. Thank you for our sheriffs and our police our military and our generals. Lord, you are using them. Lord, I just rode here today in freedom and I'm not packing a weapon upon me this morning. People are doing that, that I don't have to. So thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for those that are just making wise decisions so that no one is dumping some waste on my property that's affecting my family in a very adverse way. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that some people out there, they make it their business to protect us even when we don't even know that's what they're doing. So, Lord, we acknowledge also with that that a lot of mistakes are made and there's a lot of corruption because pride and greed and desire for power exists among sinful mankind. So, Lord, we pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom and just force them to do the right thing. God, if you have to put the clamps down on them so much so that they desperately fall on their knees and cry out for your help, Lord, let that happen. We ask for that to happen. Father, I pray that you will stir up the church to give thanks for our leaders and to pray for them, to pray for our lawmakers and to pray for those who are enforcing the laws. Father, I pray that you would use Christians to evangelize. Lord, I pray that you would stir up and revive the church. Father, that you would draw America to you. Would you draw America to you? Lord, I know we have people that love you, but on the whole, you know we are not a godly country. We're 
got some morals compared to others, but that's not the, it's not the standard, Lord. We have people that hate you and that are opposing you. I pray, Lord, that you would use the church as we live peaceful, quiet lives, evangelistic lives, and disciple-making lives to truly make the difference in a groundswell movement in these United States. Lord, we're so thankful. Of all the places we could have been born in the time periods, we are blessed, and we thank you for that blessing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.